This is Michael, you're listening to Models of Masters, and I'm so grateful you're here. I'm breaking down personal stories, learned wisdom, and pieces of insight I hope can help you along your journey. Head over to my website, michaelbecker.org, for much more. And with that, let's get right into the show. Real estate is not a get-rich-quick game, but it is a get-rich-for-sure game. Hence the reason I'm continuing to feature so many amazing developers, investors, brokers, agents, and successful real estate professionals on the show. So I'm continuing in that vein in today's episode, which is jam-packed with tons of golden nuggets of value from someone whose namesake describes the outcomes he and his team produce for their pool of investors. Zach Winner is a founding partner of Prosperity CRE, a commercial real estate investment firm. Zach specializes in providing his clients with passive income opportunities and cash-flowing multifamily real estate. As a syndicator, Zach pulls investor funds together, making his investments very accessible with the minimum investment amount typically set at 50K. In our discussion, Zach drops a ton of insight on using value-add to increase the long-term yield of his properties. He shares more on his firm's strategy for their multifamily investments, plus how they drive value for investors in building their portfolio and a new type of investment that I wasn't familiar with called triple net lease. You'll also hear Zach explain how he got started in the game, a few things he's concerned about right now, plus a few things that he's excited about for real estate investors. Pay close attention in this episode when Zach gets into some of the specs, numbers, and nuances. There's a lot of gems here that you'll hear over the next 30 minutes or so, so I'd urge you to pay close attention, particularly if you're an aspiring value investor looking to build generational wealth with real estate, as I most certainly am. Let's jump into today's episode. Here's Zach Winner. Zach, where I would like to begin this conversation is going back to the beginning for you. When did you first develop an interest in real estate investing and what what ultimately kind of led to your first dab uh, in, in, the, in the industry? Yeah, well, thanks for having me on the show, by the way, Michael. I really appreciate it. Um, you know, from a very young age, I was interested in real estate. My grandfather, owned a lot of single tenant triple net lease properties and those are properties where you're investing in um, essentially one triple net lease tenant so for example fast foods a lot of those are triple net lease tenants you know like carl's jr for example or walgreens or dollar general stores or rite aid or at the time payless shoe store my grandfather had a number of those and so seeing him invest in those i started to develop an interest at a very young age but um, i'm an attorney and um um, I don't practice law anymore. I'm full-time real estate investment and I have a real estate investment company. But uh, back when I was practicing law in the mid nineties, I got a broker's license. Um, in California, you can get a broker's license, a real estate broker's license to both do loans or mortgages um, and to act as a real estate broker in real estate transactions. As an attorney, it was very easy to get a broker's license. So I got a license and on the side, I started doing loans. and. Um, I targeted real estate investors who were buying single family homes around the country. And um, it was part of a real estate investment group that had at it as a philosophy at the time, you can turn $100,000 of equity into a million dollars in 10 years. And the strategy is uh, at the time, you could buy a single family home, three bedroom, two bath for $100,000. And at the time you could put 10% down on non-owner occupied, rent it out, 
your goal was more cash flow make, break even, maybe a little bit of profit on the cash flow, but it was this longer term equity growth strategy. So you do that 10 times, you invest $100,000, you have 10, 10 homes. And if you average out the average appreciation of homes uh, in the US within 10 years, that equity will have appreciated to a million dollars. So that was the basic strategy. And I got involved with this group. I was one of a handful of go-to lenders, went around the country, got licensed in about eight or nine key states, um, Nevada, Florida, Colorado, Utah, etc., and and that's how I got started in the real estate um, industry. And I believed in that philosophy. So at the time, that's how I started acquiring real estate. Was I was also buying homes around the country and renting them out. And and um, it's a good strategy. Um, what I found to be a better strategy is one that's more focused on on cash flow and one that's more focused on um, what I call forced appreciation. So you're not dependent fully on the market appreciating in value, but you're forcing the appreciation by increasing the, the cash flow or the net operating income. Mm, okay. So that's, that's a key difference um, when you're looking at, hey, should I just buy a house and rent it out? Or should I look at investing in a commercial property like a, a small apartment complex, like five units and up? Mm -hmm. The key difference there is when you buy a house, um, the value of that house is based off of the of, off of comparable homes in like a one mile radius. An appraiser will look at the value of those other homes and they'll compare the various components of those homes to your home and they'll say, okay, well then this is the value of your home based off of these comp sales in the last few months. Right. In commercial real estate, it's different. You're really buying a business. So you're not just buying a piece of property, you're buying uh, an ongoing business that's generating net operating income. So the value is more based off of the NOI. In commercial real estate, we, we apply a capitalization rate or a cap rate to the NOI, right? And that's how you determine the value. So to the extent that you can increase that NOI, you exponentially increase the value of the property because of that cap rate multiplier. What's your preference at this point for your building your, your personal portfolio, not necessarily your business portfolio? Are you looking at single family homes or are you more looking at those, those um, small commercial so I, st I started segueing out of um, single family homes, oh, probably in around 2010, 2011. That's when uh, I started to invest in commercial. Okay. And, you know, there are a few other benefits that I see in commercial um, that you don't necessarily have in single family homes. So one, one is economies of scale, right? In, um, let's say, for example, you have 100 single family homes and then you have a 100 unit apartment complex. The cost of maintaining that comp that complex per unit is much, much less than the cost of maintaining a hundred homes that have a hundred roofs and a hundred, you know, they're, they're in a hundred different locations. So you'd have to send maintenance crews out to a hundred different locations each time they need to be maintained. So when you go larger, you get really good economies of scale. You have on-site right. management, on-site maintenance, and it's much less to maintain per unit. Um, and the other relatively big benefit that i found when i switched to larger complexes is the quality of the property management so for us i'm in california everything i buy is outside of california um, and so i don't personally manage i i target areas that have best-in-class third-party property management companies and then i manage the managers i asset manage right. and so um, in order to get best-in-class property management companies these are management companies that want to manage larger properties. They're not the companies that are managing single family homes. If you look at who you're able to get as a management company for single family homes, they're typically much smaller firms. Oftentimes they're also acting as realtors or, or real estate agents, and they're doing this as an add on for an additional stream of revenue, but it's really not their focus. They may not even be credentialed in property management. And so, and, and, and their, their fee structure is very different. They could charge 10% of the gross 
Whereas in uh, larger commercial properties, it's very different. You're typically charged around 3%, but you're also paying for the on-site employee. You're paying for their salary. So it's a different fee structure. But the bottom line is that was an additional benefit that I saw is really being able to get much higher caliber property managers to manage my properties. Okay, that makes that makes perfect sense. What about for, for a newish investor who's primary goal is to maximize their monthly cash flow. What type of a strategy or an investment would you recommend that they that they take a look at? Yeah, so I think, you know, for me, it was, um, there's a bit of a, um, a mental issue, like when are you ready to transition? Like a lot of people start out buying single family homes because it, it's what they know and there's a certain comfort level, right? It's not as daunting of a, of a shift to go from, well, I already own a home or I'm renting a home and so I can just buy a home and rent it out. Mm-hmm. And they try to pencil out their cash flow. And you know you can do okay with that. Um, and if you buy right and you underwrite correctly before you buy, by underwrite I mean you look at all your projected income and expenses, and you make sure that you have good cash flow built in, and you built in some contingency factor. You know, then you can you can um, potentially do well with buying single-family homes just for cash flow. You won't have that appreciation benefit, um, but but you could do well. I so what I offer. Uh, with my real estate investment company is the ability for people to invest passively alongside me and then we we handle everything and that's another option so our focus is on providing ongoing cash flow and then a big upside when we sell the property and so we're typically targeting you know at least an, an eight to nine percent cash on cash return while we hold the property and then for example on our last deal um, we delivered an overall 21.5% overall average annual return when you factor in the profit on sale, plus all the tax benefits of owning owning real estate. So so it's, it's very typical for our investors to get ongoing cash flow, but then when they get their tax return, which is a K-1, they also have a tax write-off from the depreciation benefit that they're taking. Got it, got it. Now, what's, what types of uh, strategies do you do you guys bring to the table around value add to your properties that help you to win not just personally but for the investors that, that you're pulling together sure well i'll give you an, uh, two examples our two latest deals that we uh, closed escrow on acquiring this year one is a hotel to apartment conversion project so we're buying a we bought a hotel and it's in the state of washington and washington recently passed statewide legislation streamlining the conversion process enabling us to convert it to to apartments very easily uh, and they did that because there's an extreme lack of housing and demand for housing in the state of washington so we bought a hotel um and uh and we're converting it to an apartment and that's really the highest and best use for this this property and so that's a huge value add for this property um the we're projecting about a um, 20 28 internal rate of return uh, on that property now that property is not going to deliver cash flow for the first approximate nine months because of the conversion process. But it's very easy to convert hotels to to apartments, especially the type of apartments that that we're creating there, because all of the apartment units are essentially already built out. We're just coming in and upgrading these hotel units, hotel units, and putting in uh, kitchenettes, upgrading the bathrooms, etc. And so it's a much easier conversion process than, for example, convert, converting an office to a residential building. Uh, when there's a lot of because of the 
distress in office right now, there's a lot of discussion about doing that, those types of conversions, but those are much more costly than what we're doing with this hotel to apartment conversion. So that's one example of how we're adding value. The other is we recently acquired a 180 unit apartment complex in Kansas City, Missouri, which is a great market for, for multifamily. And there, in the, the property is already doing very well. It was about 95% occupied when we took ownership, but the rents were quite a bit below market. And the units hadn't been upgraded consistently since 2006. And some of the common areas hadn't had a refresh in a number of years as well. So we're coming in and upgrading the common areas um, and then upgrading all of the units. And as we do that, we're able to increase the rents for those units. And so that's, that's a huge value add. And as we upgrade the rents, that increases the net operating income or NOI that increases the cash flow, and then that exponentially increases the overall value. And both of these properties are about a three to five year hold. So on that one, the investors receive cash flow from day one. Mm -hmm. Average projected cash flow is 9%. It starts out a little bit lower because it's a value add where we're going in and upgrading the units over the first two years. So it's about six and a half percent the first year, about eight and a half percent the second year, and then it goes up from there. But when you factor on the projected profit on sale, that one is also projected to deliver about a 21% average annual return factoring in the profit on sale. And for both of these properties, there's huge tax benefits as well. We, This is another benefit you have when you invest in commercial real estate versus single family homes. Um, there's something called a cost segregation analysis, which looks at the various components of the property, which may depreciate at different, different time lengths. So it could be 29 years, 31 and a half years, if you do straight line depreciation, depending on if it's multifamily versus other types of, of larger properties. But when you look at the various components of that property, some might depreciate at three years, five years, seven years, 15 years. So you do this cost segregation analysis, and that allows you to front load the depreciation. So it's very common for us to have cash flow that our investors receive, but then they also get a big tax write-off when they get their K-1 because we're front loading that depreciation tax write-off. Okay. It's a little technical, but but it, it's, it's actually a very big advantage from a tax standpoint. And speaking of numbers, walk me through some of the financials on both of those properties, the Washington and the Kansas City, if you wouldn't mind. What did you buy them for? How many doors in each? Uh, what is your anticipated cash flow? And uh, what what are you hoping to, to ultimately uh, gain in appreciation on both of those? Yeah, so on both of them, we're, we're forcing the appreciation. And so we're actually, um, from a cap rate standpoint, we're expanding the cap rate. So in other words, we're when we underwrote it, we're assuming, let's assume the market weakens. We know we're going into a recession. So let's assume that the cap rate decompresses or expands, which makes the property less valuable if the NOI is the same. So we factored that into both, but we then we assumed, okay, well, what's our NOI going to be, our net operating income, as we increase it and then as we look to sell it. So for, let me use Regency as an example. We bought that property for $23 million. We're putting $2.5 million into upgrading it. And um, we paid somewhere around, I want to say close to a 5% cap rate. And we're assuming we're going to sell it closer to a 6% cap rate, which means less money if this NOI was the same. But we're increasing the NOI so much that uh, when we sell it, we're still going to have a huge profit. So, so on that one, you know, the cash flow, as I mentioned, the average cash flow is about 9%. While we hold it, it's a three to five year hold. And then when you factor in the profit on sale, uh, it's about a 21% um, average annual return. So another way to look at it is if we hold it for five years, it's a 2x equity multiple. So yeah. if you put in 100, you'll end up getting 200 back over the course of the, the holding period and the profits on sale. Do you guide investors in terms of how much 
they should be investing per property or do you leave it up to them in terms of however much they want to invest with you guys you'll put it to work yeah so the way we work is is um um we have individual offerings per property so when we identify a property we put it under escrow um, we take it through a certain point in due diligence and when we're fairly certain we're we're going to move forward with the project then we'll put together a full property package offering memorandum private placement memorandum for the investors to review and and the property package is usually like a 50 page deck something like that that goes through you know why we like the market why we like the neighborhood why we like the property what our value add strategies are each year of the holding period, you know, what our projected income and expenses and cash flow are and what our projected profit on sale is. And so they can see all of that information and decide, you know, if it's something they want to invest in. Usually we'll set a minimum investment um, amount of $50,000. And we have a lot of people that come in, you know, at 50,000. And then, you know, it goes up from there. So for example, on our last deal, we had a $3 million investor, we had a $1 million investor, and then all different types of levels in between. Awesome. In terms of cities, are there any hidden gems that you're seeing? And then a part B to that question is what is going on with the institutional investors coming into a lot of these big markets and buying up a lot of the multifamily, the larger multifamily um, commercial opportunities and how's that affecting uh, investors like you? Yeah, so um, great question. So we we target um, certain markets and we look at over 25 different metrics when deciding markets that we wanna focus on. And so our process is, First, we identify markets that we like, and then we drill down from there. You know, which which markets do we like, and then which neighborhoods, and then we start looking at individual properties. Mm-hmm. For us, that's the best way to go. Otherwise, you're looking all over the country and you're just you know chasing rabbits. So, drill down from top level down. And some of the factors that we we look at are um, net migration in, population growth, job growth, income growth, mm-hmm. diverse economy. We like economies where there's at least one or more STEM focused jobs, science, technology, engineering, math. Um, and we like markets that are landlord friendly. So we will not go into a market that has rent control. It's one of the many reasons we're not in California. We like markets that are business friendly, that are incentivizing businesses to move in and that thereby incentivizes employees to move in. So we like markets also that are also have a lower cost of living. Um, so those are the few things. That, so. Um, what are some of the markets that we like based off of that? Well, we like markets in the Midwest. I mentioned we love Kansas City, Columbus, Ohio, Indianapolis. We like markets in the Southeast. From a macro longer term trend, there still continues to be a lot of migration to these smile states. So we very much like markets like North Carolina, the Research Triangle, Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill, some of the cities in between, Greensboro. Um, so those are a few of the markets that, that we like. We've, we've been in Texas and, um, you know, that continues to be a strong market for um, in terms of migration, job growth, population growth. Um, there are some um, insurance and tax issues there that, that that give us pause at times though. Got it. And how do you see the how do you see the multifamily game changing over the next decade as more more of these big institutions come in and start buying up a lot of these these bigger properties? What what is the what is the space gonna look like for the average investor going forward? You know, it's been very, very competitive for years. It's been very hard to find assets you know for us we have lots of investors um and you know it's a great model our our kind of value add model it's not rocket science but it's a proven model that works time and again um so the equity side isn't a problem but the problem is finding properties that pencil out for the the price right you have to negotiate a price that's going to pencil out and so it's been very competitive um i'm interested in seeing if the landscape will shift later this year so you know, because the Fed's raised rates at a historically fast pace, right? Essentially, you know, 
100 basis points in, in a year. It's been crazy. It's gone up like 5%, right, in a year. Um, it's 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 caused a big shift in our economy, obviously, and a big shift in real estate. Real estate is very interest rate sensitive, and, and now a big shift with the banks, with you know the banking crisis. So, if you look at Q1 of 2023, number of multifamily transactions, lowest number of multifamily transactions since 2009, since the Great Recession. Wow. So there's been a real pause in in number of transactions, and we're seeing right now we continue to see a lack of in, inventory in our markets. Some of the markets that are very distressed, for example, Phoenix is very distressed right now. So we're seeing a lot of inventory come on market, but it's not a market that we're particularly interested to go into because they have a number of components that that I think are going to continue to cause distress there. For example, they, they've had a huge number of new apartments come online, and there are still a number of additional new apartments that are going to be coming online. They're going to continue to create an absorption issue in that market. So, um, so, so there's been a real pause in transactions from a nationwide level, and then in addition to that, from a nationwide level, there's about 500,000 additional units that are coming online. So, nationwide, you know, we also have this kind of this absorption issue that the industry is going to deal with. And then on top of that, uh, two or three years ago, we had a number of people who acquired large multifamily using adjustable rate financing and bridge financing. And so this is just starting, but I think we'll see more of it through 2023 as those loans become due. If those owners want to refinance, their debt probably just doubled in cost. And so that's going to cause some distress. So we're kind of looking at the market, waiting to see if there's going to be a shift and there's going to be more opportunity for distressed seller sales. Not necessarily distressed assets, but more a seller's in a bind and they need to sell the property and that may cause a shift in the pricing. Yeah, which could open up interesting opportunities for for investors looking to to get in the door or to add to their portfolio. Exactly. And I, I can echo that sentiment here in the Phoenix market. Living here for the last year, naturally, this is where I kind of began my search uh, for my first property. And there's just there's almost there's next to nothing that makes sense economically, um, especially you know if you're looking in the more affluent areas, Scottsdale, Tempe, for example, which is where I began my search and quickly realized it's just not feasible right now. So so I'm definitely feeling that. Um, what is you mentioned a couple of, of issues around the uh, absorption issue and, and obviously the rising rates. What is either worrying or concerning you? And then conversely, what's one thing that you are excited about and that you are bullish on when it comes to the market going forward? Well, you know, one of the things I'm waiting to see is, is what happens with, with lending. So um, I think they've really, um, in a number of ways, not necessarily relate just interest rates, but, but loan to value, funding that's available, the credit market's market has tightened up a lot. If you look at office, for example, it's very hard to get a loan for any type of office office acquisition, but that, you know, the office sector is so distressed, but I'm seeing that start to trickle over into multifamily as well. So it's harder to get financing. It's harder to get financing at the level that will pencil out, you know, not just from an interest rate, but a loan to value standpoint. I think you're probably looking at, you know, if you were able to get 75% loan to value on the, you know, two years ago today, maybe you're looking at 60, 65%. Um, so, that makes it more difficult to pencil out the deal, you know, especially if you're focused on ongoing cash on cash from an ROI standpoint. Yeah. So that gives me pause, you know, the lending market's constantly fluctuating, but that's just another, another wrinkle that you have to work through when you're looking at deals. Definitely. But I do think what, you know, what's, what's longer term, what I think is hopeful is I think the Fed maybe is gonna raise rates one more time and then that that's gonna be it, there's gonna be a pause. And then I think, you know, People often look at the yield curve and they look at the yield curve inverting, saying, oh, well, this, is, this is, you know, this is bad. Um, interest rates are spiking. Well, now the yield curve has uninverted. If you look at the two-year T-bill, it's 
uninverted um, by a, a hundred basis points. So I think historically, when the yield curve uninverts, it leads to a recession, which is bad. But then in six to 12 months, you typically start to see interest rates come down. So I think if, uh, you know, if this is similar to what's happened historically in six to 12 months, we could see the Fed start to lower interest rates again. Okay. Okay. Yeah. The reason the lower is not great, right? The lower because the economy is in distress and we're in a recession. But from a multifamily standpoint or real estate investor standpoint, ultimately, you know, that will benefit our market. Got it. Zach, going back to, to the beginning for you, I'm interested in kind of the biggest impression or learning that you had in watching your grandfather do his work or if you didn't watch, um, just absorbing lessons in terms of chatting or chatting with, with your, yeah. your dad, um, yeah. what are the, the things that stick out? Well, you know, when he, I'm an, I'm an, I mentioned I'm an attorney. When my grandfather passed away, um, uh, my dad and his sister inherited um, these triple net lease properties that he still held. And I kind of took over asset managing them. And so I got to see firsthand uh, what it was like to own single tenant triple net leases. Right. And, um, you know, they're great in terms of ongoing mailbox money in, until they're not, right? They're really, it's hands off mailbox money, armchair investing until it's not. And by that, I mean, when something changes and, and for example, as we entered a, you know, a recessionary environment, um, the tenants really have all of the leverage, all of the negotiating power. So we had a number of tenants, even before the leases um, uh, were up for renewal, who came to us and said, we need a rent reduction. Otherwise, we're either going to walk away or we're going to not going to renew. Mm -hmm. And because of the, the type of property, these are basically standalone box buildings. Right. Um, if they're in remote tertiary locations, small markets, they're very hard to rent out. Mm -hmm. you, if the tenant moves out, let's say, for example, it's a Payless shoe store or, or a Rite Aid, and it's a box sitting on a parking lot in a larger mall, right? Mm -hmm. Then it's very hard to rent out. You just got this vacant building. And um, and whereas you may have had a credit tenant before, if it sits vacant, you're going to take whoever you can get to, to provide that additional income. So you may not have a credit tenant. So one of my lessons there is, you know, I'm always looking for ways to structure away risk when I'm acquiring a property. Mm -hmm. so I, I actually don't like these single tenant, triple net lease investments. I like multi-tenant investment properties. So, so I do own um, two um, office parks in St. Louis and they're triple net lease tenants. They're industrial flex office parks. And by that, I mean, industrial flex isn't like co-working, we work flex. Industrial flex office parks are where you have office or showroom in the front and in the back, there's some type of warehousing space. It's, it's a very desirable um, type of building for certain tenants that have showroom and need warehousing space or office and need some warehousing space. Okay. And so those are all single, those are all triple net lease, um, but they're multiple tenants. So if we have a vacancy, it's just one of say 14 tenants and, and we can handle that while we look to have a replacement tenant come in. So, so, so I honestly, I don't like these single tenants because of, because of that risk if, if they move out. And it's just harder, a lot harder to replace there than, for example, if you have a single family home that you're renting out, there's lots of people that want to rent homes, so you won't have a problem finding a new tenant. Yep. So thinking about, A, what you're getting for your money, but also then the risk that you're introducing into your portfolio as you acquire these properties. Super important. Yeah, yeah um, super important to look at, okay, what happens if? You know, yeah. the money's great now, right? And you've yeah. got this long-term lease, but what happens if the tenant breaches the lease? Or what happens when it expires and they don't want to renew? What are you going to yeah. do? Right. It's, it's something a lot of these 
there's a lot of these single tenant, triple net lease brokers out there pushing them as a safe investment. But I just, I think you need to do your due diligence and really take a hard look at, you know, what if, what happens when, when that lease is up for renewal and, and they either move out, you know, or they, or they push you for a reduction in rent and then your cash flow goes down. Right, right. So guys, if you're listening and you're wanting to get involved with something like that, make sure you connect with someone like, like Zach so that you can make sure that you're making you know, good decisions that you're de-risking and that you're maximizing your upside all, all at the same time. It's super important. Zach, as we, as we kind of close up this conversation, is there any tips uh, or tactics that you want to just leave on the table for our listeners as they look to either get started or to scale their, their portfolio? So, you know, I think um, if, if your listeners are interested in, in getting into to larger uh, multifamily properties, um, you know, we offer a, a, an opportunity to, opportunity to invest passively, but you still get all of the benefits of owning real estate, uh, owning large, large scale multifamily properties. And so, you know, I'd welcome anybody that might be interested to connect with us. And if they'd like to, I send out a monthly newsletter that just has an update on all of our, our uh, investment properties so they can track how they're doing. And then we, when we have new investment opportunities, uh, we'll include that as well in the newsletter. So if anybody's interested, they're welcome to reach out to me and I'm happy to add them to the list. Great. And where can people find you and uh, and sign up for that list? Yeah. So um, people can find me on on LinkedIn under you know Zach Winner, and um, and just reach out to me there and message me. Um, and uh, my website is uh, prosperitycre.com, and you can reach out to me there as well. Wonderful, Zach. This has been incredibly informative. I really appreciate your time today, and I learned a ton. So thank you. Awesome. Thanks, Michael. That's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review as everything helps. I'm working to spread these insights to as many people as I possibly can. You can connect with me on Instagram at workwithmichael. Feel free to shoot me a message or check out my link tree for more resources. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. My book, Content Capitalist, is on sale now. Grab your copy by visiting my website or tapping the link in the episode description. I also just released the online learning portal, which expands on what I share in the book. This includes four hours of edited, captioned video tutorials and trainings, plus dozens of downloadables and templates. Between the book and the e-academy, you're going to be equipped to literally blow your revenue targets out of the water and eviscerate your competition this year, all by putting content at the core. Please subscribe to the podcast, rate, review, comment, and share all the things and hit me up on LinkedIn if you'd like to connect. I am here to serve you and that's it. I will see you in the next episode.